Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Chris Desour, a founder of Verity Wine Partners on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? Very well. Thank you. Very nice to see you. Likewise. You're a Baltimore guy. I am. Yeah. What was that like? Uh, pretty boring, I guess. Yeah. Uh, before Camden Yards came around? It was yeah. Like... <laughs> it was the, the Colts were technically still there when I was a kid, and we grew up in the suburbs, and I wasn't in the city, obviously, but there, it wasn't a whole lot of excitement there. Not much food and wine culture there. We'd go to... Local pubs, basically. Yeah, cheeseburgers, wings, mozzarella sticks, that sort of stuff. And then you got involved with restaurants to just make some side money? Yeah, when I was 14, I started busing tables at the local country club, and I kind of liked the hospitality and food side of it. Not that it was a particularly nice place for food, but I kind of got into the hospitality part of it. And as soon as I turned 18, I started waiting tables, and pretty soon after that, I was managing restaurants and and it just grew from there. But I always enjoyed the restaurant business, even though it's a lot of hours. And Well, when there's nothing to do around right. town, sometimes right. it's nice to have long shifts. That's true. You're like, yeah. yeah, I'm not really going back to them. Like yeah. this big, exciting. Right. And you can make pretty good money waiting tables. So something I liked and wine passion came out of that. Working with different wine directors as a waiter eventually evolved into being a wine manager and general manager of restaurants. Were there specific people you were like, yeah, Cap, well, that's an influence on me? Um, in the restaurant business, for sure. There's a guy, Lynn Patrick, who owned a restaurant called the Milton Inn in Sparks, Maryland, which is near where Robert Parker lives and a lot of wealthy people. And he had a pretty amazing wine list. It was the first place where I tried Latash and I had no idea, you know, at the time what that was. And all I knew was it was really expensive and it was amazing. And I had just turned 21 and it was interesting to me it was actually new zealand sauvignon blanc that really kind of spiked my interest because you know when you're young in college uh, all the women that we hung out with had like the bag in the box stuff and it was pretty awful and never really liked it and then i tried this new zealand sauvignon blanc with him and this was back before it was really popular and it was still really minerally and crisp and fresh and it really spiked my interest and it, it was just something different i hadn't really ever thought about wine having not grown up with it and I liked the restaurant business, but it was really the restaurant side of it, not the wine side, until this particular job where this guy would taste wines with the whole staff every day. We'd try different wines on the list. And it was stuff like Sonoma Couture, you know, back in the mid-90s. It was, in, especially in Baltimore, it was a big deal. And it was something like, wow, this is kind of cool. And yeah, so that's kind of where it started. Give you this whole entry into like kind of a different world. That right. You yeah. The first... You know, let's call the first quality wines that I tried at the age of 21, having been a beer drinker, basically, my teens and early college years, almost exclusively. Because you're a taller guy. Does that mean that you were picked on to be the buyer? Like, they were like, hey, Chris, why don't you go see if you can get us some beer? Right. Yeah. Taller, and I looked a little bit older. So, yeah, I was... And I worked in a liquor store too. So Oh, you left I mean, that part yeah. conveniently yeah. off the uh <laughs> that, that made it pretty easy to get the, the alcohol. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. As opposed to putting it here on the shelf, putting it there in the right. basket, like yeah. worked out. <laughs> yeah, and I won't I won't say the store, but the owner would let us buy wine even though I was underage. So yeah. So actually, you know, 
kind of a big help to your career there. Yeah, like early for sure. on. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, every aspect of our business, you can learn something. I mean, I was basically just stocking the shelves and throwing, folding down boxes and doing that sort of stuff. But, you know, it's a, it's some experience in a retail store that I have that helps me translate that into our job, which is selling wine to retail and restaurants. So, But I feel like you were, you gravitated more at that time to the restaurant side. For sure. Yeah. The, the retail job was really easy one right by my house where I was living with my roommates and it was just a convenience thing. I was also waiting tables at the same time. That was the day gig. And then the night gig was at the restaurant. So I think now, you know, it's pretty common to have a younger person be like the wine director of a, right. a restaurant, someone in their 20s, you know, 25, right. 26. But I feel like that also happened to you like in the 90s, right? Late 90s? Yeah, I was 23, I guess, about when I had my first job purchasing the wine. I didn't select the wines, but I would put the orders in. And I would schlep all the cases up and down the stairs. and The exotic do, stuff, the fun yeah, stuff. Yeah, all the fun stuff. I think I was about 24 when I got my first buying job and then managing a restaurant and buying the wine. So every step of the way, I've kind of always looked at what I could be doing more and how I could be more productive and helpful with whichever job I was doing at the time. So that must have screwed you over for your career, trying to be a helpful dude. Yeah, there's not, <laughs> not a lot of people appreciate it, but... What was the segue from restaurant to wholesale? I was buying wine at a restaurant in D.C. And one of my preferred salespeople had told me about a job. He was a supplier. He wasn't a distributor. And he told me about a job at his distributor, which was the Henry Wine Group, which back then was uh, pretty new in D.C. Um, and they had a really incredible portfolio, especially at that time. You know, it was the middle of the Parker craze and... We sold like the Jorge Ordonez, Eric Solomon, classical lines of Spain, and big California names like Turley, Sinequanon, all the stuff that people really wanted, and especially in D.C. where Parker is his backyard. So I got to kind of the Grateful Palette also, which was I would just wait for the Parker issue to come out, and I'd wake up super early in the morning, and as soon as it came out, I'd be on the phone with all my customers, and all the wine would be gone by the time the other salespeople woke up. It was... <laughs> It was pretty interesting. And the craze, it was really serious how much wine that that guy sell if you gave it a good score, especially back then. But it really benefited someone who was a go-getter and getting right. after it because it was really about getting the product and then reselling it right. very quickly. <laughs> right. And it was always about also trying to balance, though, and making sure my customers that existed already and that were into those wines didn't get completely screwed just because this big score came out. So it was a little bit of a balance of setting aside some cases for this account, but making sure I blew out as many cases as I could on the phone. Back then, no text messages, really, and it was predominantly picking up the phone and dialing for dollars. And that was about when price spread started to really happen, like where you were like, okay, this wine is two, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred dollars, and this wine is twenty dollars, and both of them are ninety-one points. Right. Yep, for sure. A lot of like the middle price range wines, especially with people like Grateful Palate and Jorge Ordonez, they had twelve dollar retail wines that were getting ninety-three, ninety-four points, and it was total chaos. Like people would go nuts, and every account wanted as many cases as they could get. Like Marquis Phillips and stuff. For sure. That was a big one. I made a few bucks selling that stuff, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that for was... good a, or bad. <laughs> right. But, I mean, it was a different time. In yeah, a way. it was. And that yeah. stuff was actually cool back then. Restaurants liked it, too. I mean, it, now it's not as cool to get a big score as it used to be, I guess. I mean, it's. I don't think there's anything wrong with it, of course. And we love when our wines get big press because it makes our sales easier and... But back then, it was cool for everybody. Everybody wanted the Grateful Palate stuff. I, from what I understand, the Veritas here was like their biggest customer. So really fine dining restaurants were all over this stuff. I remember as a sommelier, a person coming in, looking and seeing that I had some Marcus Phillips and then coming back every day that week to drink it. Yeah. Every Shiraz number nine. Day. Remember that yeah, one? Yeah, yeah. I think that's what it was. I don't know. It was That uh, was the one that always got like 99, 100 points. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was, was like 50 bucks also. I was yeah. so clueless, I didn't know what it was. Right. And the distributor's like, I broke off some of this for you. Because, right. you know, I like you. We're doing some good business. So here's right. your 10 cases or, or whatever it was. Yeah. And I put it on the list and this guy saw it. And then he proceeded to come back every single yep. day yeah. to drink it. Yeah. And the craze of the Robert Parker consumers coming in and they wanted that stuff that got the 99 points. And 
I don't think that happens that much in restaurants anymore anyway. So what you really saw was wine becoming some serious business. Yeah, for sure. What was the Henry Wine Group like? I mean, they were a California-based company, and they're still in California. They moved into the East Coast. They bought. They started with a guy named Jim Arsenault, who started a company called The Wine Source in D.C. He's pretty much a legend in D.C. He brought all the best cool California stuff before it was cool to D.C. And then he took on some partnership with the Henry Wine Group and opened there. He's the one who hired me there. And at the time, they were a pretty big deal in California. They were over $100 million in revenue. They were the Winebow distributor, and they were kind of neck and neck with Winebow in the country for being the fine wine leader sales-wise. And then Country Vintner bought them a few years after I left, so the Vintner Group now kind of controls the whole Mid-Atlantic there. And Henry Wine Group was part of that acquisition, so they don't exist on the East Coast anymore. They're still a California company, but not really the same as it was back then. But they got successful enough that someone would be interested in buying them, which yeah. is always a sign of right. doing pretty good. <laughs> yeah, sure. For sure. And that's probably when you started to forge some interesting and long-term relationships, like you represent Eric Solomon today. For yes, correct. Um, yeah, a lot of the suppliers that we started our company with were people I worked with at the Henry Wine Group in D.C. that I made a connection with. Uh, my first supplier job in New York was with a supplier, uh, Dendor Wine, and he was a supplier of mine in D.C., I always try and stay in touch with people as I move on from one job to the next. And even if they leave their job, I keep in contact with them. I mean, it's really a business of relationships. And um, yeah, we started our company with um, pretty well-known wineries. So we weren't starting with zero and we weren't coming in trying to introduce brand new things. We're working with people like Hedges and Classical Wines of Spain and Montanor and Stuhlmuller when we started. And it was stuff that people already knew and bought that we could walk in and say, hey, we're the ones that have this now, rather than going in and saying, hey, we're the new company and we have a bunch of stuff that you don't know. You want to give us a chance? And we knew that there were so many companies already in this market that doing it the latter way would have been really difficult. So what was the segue from <clears throat> D.C. to New York? I wanted to get into management, and there weren't any jobs in D.C., essentially. So I started looking online for jobs in New York, and I actually got a job as the fine wine manager at Peerless. Oh, okay. You remember them? Yeah. yeah the precursor. So, right. Which is now Charmer and Peerless together, which formed Empire. So they, that happened after I left there. There's kind of a history of after I leave places, they merge or get sold. <laughs> but, but, I mean, the difference between D.C. and New York must have been pretty... What, what struck you about that? I think the biggest difference was, I think, just how how competitive it is here and how, like, when I was in D.C. as a buyer, I bought from everyone that walked in the door, and it was about eight total people. If you buy in New York from everyone that walks in the door, you're not even going to be able to, your accountant's going to kill you. You're not even going to be able to keep track of all the vendors. There's 200 licensed wholesalers in New York. I mean, in D.C., I literally bought from everyone that walked in the door that brought me a wine that I liked, and I would taste with anyone that came in. And I would see maybe two or three reps a day. If you open your doors like that in New York, you would have to just start throwing people out because there'd be a line of 30 people waiting outside the door. And I think that was the biggest difference was just how unwelcoming customers were because of very good reason why. Because if they're super welcoming, they're going to be overwhelmed with hundreds of salespeople waiting outside their door every day. And that was probably the biggest difference and thing that I needed to deal with that adjustment. Trying to get over that hump of right. letting, having them let you in. Right. Yeah. And just getting them to say, oh, okay, yeah, I'll give you the time. You can come by, bring some wines. Yeah. So and, later when you had some recognized brands like Montanor, right. which hit some price points right. that are retail friendly, right. that was probably helpful. Yeah, that. for sure. And, you know, no offense to Peerless, but it wasn't easy going in and saying i'm from peerless and you know i'd never in dc the really big companies aren't hated in new york they're really disliked and i don't know if that's right or wrong but the buyers and i, I was the fine wine manager so i was going into the fine wine accounts and they did not like peerless i'd say i'm from peerless and they'd be like you can leave now and so once i moved over to the supplier side it was a lot easier because i was working with smaller brands and i was going through lauber which was still really well loved in the city and they had great relationships, and they opened a lot of doors for me to go in and make it much easier to sell wine to people. 
you saw a transition from peerless to supply side and you're like let me do that yeah what was that opportunity um it was called a company called dendor wine and it's basically a broker and we're the broker for the wines i had mentioned just before that was the beginning of verity wine partners those those wines were with me as the broker in new york and new jersey and as the things at lauber started to become less good for me uh, i started looking for new distribution for my wines what era is that this is middle of 08 okay okay so also some like the height of a financial boom right. starting to unravel. Right. The economy is just starting to fall apart and all the quality distributors in New York had shut their doors to new suppliers. I would have had to split my book up amongst four or five different distributors. And I never really came at it with the intention of starting our own business. I went looking for new distribution and I found a lot of dead ends and I had really good wines. Just people were just automatically saying no at that time because everything was going down and they needed to you know, batten down the hatches and focus on what they had intelligently. So, of course, um, so we started talking with my partner, Steve Duran, who was a sales rep at Lauber and attorney before that in his second career wine person, as many of us are, not me, but others. So he and I started talking and his wife was a Harvard MBA and she said, look, we can put a business plan together. We have this amount of revenue with these brands that are looking for a place. Let's try and make this happen. So kind of started there. It was a necessity. It wasn't really something that I had strategically thought about prior to running into all these dead ends with my brands that I needed to move somewhere. So it was really just the timing thing that made this happen. And fortunately, it's going fairly well so far. So so you were supply side and you had a portfolio of fairly large size for right. that. And you found that you couldn't fit it all into one distributor. Right. Yeah, and so not even two or three, probably. It would have. I mean, my Spanish portfolio alone was forty some producers. So, and everybody had another Spanish book. And had I found homes for all of that entire portfolio, whereas before it was all at Lauber essentially. And yeah, I didn't want to deal with five, six distributors for what I was doing, dealing with just one at the time. It had been a while since anyone had done it. Surprisingly. You know, you can name on two hands the companies that are in the 40 to $60 million range, and not many. There's 200 in the under $20 million range with really tiny focused portfolios, and a lot of them are really great. And I understand why a lot of buyers now buy from so many different people because there's so many good options out there. But we very specifically wanted to be kind of like the old style Martin Scott, Lauber, Skernick type of portfolio where we have something for most every account and we can bring enough things with enough sales behind it to keep our sales team happy so that we don't have a lot of turnover with our staff and et cetera, et cetera. So what were the takeaways when you decided to found a medium-sized distributor? What did you learn from that in that process? That it's definitely not, I mean, we never thought it was going to be easy, but it's definitely a weird place to be right now because... There's so many medium-sized wineries now that are involved with larger companies. And a lot of those larger companies are connected to the larger distributors. And, you know, there's no way a company like ours can compete with Southern when it comes to helping someone out for a big purchase order. Like this winery struggling this year. They need to make a number for the end of the year. How many cases can my company buy versus Southern? And that is sometimes detrimental to our relationship with certain wineries and that's unfortunate but i understand me and having a business we we understand the needs for revenue and cash and you got bills to pay you have to do what you have to do is that more involving domestic suppliers like american suppliers? yeah it's heavily domestic yeah it seems like over that period of 80s 90s some of them grew in production right, right. and a lot of them grew really big in the early 2000s when everything was booming and going really well and they increased the production and you know i remember you go out pretty much any wine at 30 or 40 dollars wholesale and be like it's awesome and people would buy it and they didn't even think twice and now there's so many wines in that category and many of the ones that have been in that category for a long time grew their production and there's still only so many people consuming those wines so they found themselves in financial stress and 
Some came out really well, but the great majority ended up with more wine than they were able to sell. And in a way, they're you know competing now with categories that were just not on the radar right. for like Muscadet and yep. Cru Beaujolais, where yep. people just weren't yep. looking at those as $30, $40 wines before, right? right? For sure. Especially in New York and New Jersey. I mean, every every wine produced in the world, I think, is pretty much available here to buy. I mean, so we, we looked one time, the amount of wines listed in Florida versus New York, I think there were 20 times as many wineries listed in New York as there are in Florida. So a lot in the population, I don't think, is 20 times the size. Over the years of then having that distribution, in terms of the sell side, I get it on the supplier side, but on the sell side, what did you find at the medium level? We found that it's, and we started out very specifically to be this, we found that it's really important to be customer service oriented, to take care of our customers' needs, and to be really supplier friendly. If the export director of the winery wants to come and work the market with our reps, we'll say, sure, you can come. No problem. We try to over-accommodate people and the same for our customers if they need something we do late orders more than we would like but if someone texts me at 10 o'clock at night and says hey i need wine for my by the glass tomorrow i'm going to get the wine there for them and we'll pay for it it costs us money to process late orders but we do whatever basically our customers ask of us theoretically and what is important when you have producers that are known producers that have a brand what is important to building that for them when you want to further a brand, how do you go about doing that? The one thing that we've always tried to do is to focus on distribution and customers, not pricing, not discounts. We don't do hardly any large volume discounts. We maybe have four or five wines in our entire book that have a more than a 10 case price on them because we, while we appreciate some of the larger customers that want that advantage we also know that you know you lose a lot of the mom and pop shops by having that because they can't compete so it's always a delicate balance trying to keep our really big customers happy and they buy a lot of wine from us and we of course want to keep them happy but we also know that one customer who buys 50 cases a month isn't as good as having 20 customers to buy 10 cases a month there's a lot of temptation to set these large case prices up for these larger customers and to get this brand going. But long term, that's detrimental to the brand's health because you're relying on fewer customers with lesser volume. Whereas we try and put the great majority of our inexpensive wines, the deep deals on 10 cases, and we try and get it into as many places as possible. And if one of the big stores wants to buy it, we're super happy about that. But also, if the only way they're going to buy it is if we give them a super deep discount and we don't make any money, then we're not going to do that. That also keeps the wine at a certain price point. It helps do that. It's pretty hard to keep it anywhere nowadays because you have so many people that'll just take a $12 wine and put it at $12.99 on Wine Searcher, and they may not even have bought the wine. A lot of them just connect to our beverage media feed and put the wine at $12.99 when it wholesales at 12 and we get a lot of phone calls from other distributors and our suppliers like, why is this guy so low? Well, we actually haven't even sold him the wine. It's like ghost but, inventory. They're yeah, like, once they right. get the order, they'll buy it from you. Right, exactly. And yeah. so for that reason, it's a cash flow business. So they're not sitting on inventory because they haven't bought it from you yet. And right. they think that they can charge much less for it because they haven't done the outlay until the order's in. That's correct, yeah. But at some point, somebody has to be holding some wine, and that's you. <laughs> yeah, we, we end up holding it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been maybe an unexpected change over the last few years. I mean, I feel like Wine Searcher is so far removed from that environment that you talked about earlier when it was like on the phone. Right. And, yeah, you know. it didn't exist. I mean, I don't know how old Wine Searcher is, but it definitely came around about when we started, I think maybe seven years ago at most. But, you know, it's a great tool for consumers, but it's really bad for wineries who are trying to protect the price who sell direct to consumers themselves and then they have their wine on wine searcher less than they sell it in any winery of size and especially of higher end they can't sustain their business without doing direct to consumer business because that's where they make their best money because they're selling it essentially little below retail directly to the consumer which i'm all for you know any anything that any winery has to do to make their margins and make their money so they can then sell us their product at a reasonable price. 
and they can be happy and make their money and not have to revert to going and making some deal to get out of financial stress. So, which is better for us. And the healthier financially all of our producers are, the better for us because we provide a very good service. And as long as they're financially stable, then they're going to prefer being with a company like us, I think. But again, that's more of a domestic thing. It's almost entirely domestic, yeah. So do you see a big difference between selling, because you do sell a lot of imported wine. It's not like you don't. So do you see a big difference in those two markets? The best thing for us about dealing with domestic wines, and it's been a big focus for us in the last couple of years, especially besides the fact that we really see a lot of great things happening you know, in America in general, Oregon, Washington, California, New York State, there's lots of cool stuff happening. But besides that, it's just it's a much easier business to manage because our inventory is three weeks away versus two months sometimes from Italy or France, sometimes longer, you know, depending on how proactive the winery is. But it's it's a lot easier to manage that business and to manage the growth, the sales, and obviously in the inventory intense business, it's that's a very important thing. It's making sure that you're moving your inventory and you're not sitting on it for too long. And so predicting the sales on domestic wines is much easier because we can take less of an investment to start. And then once the sales pick up, we'll have more wine in a couple of weeks. We get wine from California sometimes in two weeks. And there's so, no currency fluctuation. Yeah, exactly. Which right now is a very good thing, the currency fluctuation. But Who knows, you know, long term, nobody wants to guess how much money they're going to make on something. And the euro is really unstable. So, And at the same time, in Europe, they're a little more likely to strike at the dock. Yeah, all the time. All the time. In August, good luck getting any wine out of Europe. They're just closed. They're like, sorry, we'll be gone for a month. (laughs) Okay. Well, you know that the busiest time of year is starting exactly right now when we need to order the wine. No, you need to order that in July or you can wait till September. And we order in September, it's too late. So we have to load in all of our wine from every import market, but Europe in particular, in July. And it comes in early September and we don't even need it yet. But we have to sit on it until the business picks up in October. So it's just a lot easier dealing with domestic wines. It's again cash flow. Yeah, cash flow is very important. Obviously, we're a six-year-old company and you know lots of bumps in the road since we started and it's always important to manage the cash flow and at the same time the educational curve on varietally labeled domestic wines is probably super, less super easy like yeah. you're not having to explain like this right. is a corbier right and every account almost in new york and new jersey has domestic wines i mean there's maybe a couple hundred accounts in both states that don't sell domestic wines and then you have italian wines where this is the group of accounts that sell a lot of Italian wine and then you have French wines. This is the, so everybody has domestic wines on their list. Uh, almost everybody anyway. So again, looking so you big have a much picture. bigger target. Yeah. And, and a real desire not to get too micro marketed so that if something goes bad in that segment of the market, you don't go down. Basically, right. is that the idea? Yeah, for sure. You know, cause it's the same thing where you're like, you know, we really don't want this wine with just three retailers. We'd rather spread it. Right. For sure. That also implies that the market's just more fickle now and that people just might change and be like, no, we're, we're not doing that anymore. And you're like, oh, because I have all the cases right. that I bought, yeah. you know, thinking that you would. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's obviously another challenge. And one of the benefits of spreading the sales around more is one or two accounts decide they don't want it anymore, which is certainly their prerogative. And I understand. I changed my list all the time when I was a buyer. So... Yeah, having more people buying it on lesser volumes is much more safe for us as far as our investment in our inventory, yeah. So outside of the retail consumer, which I feel like we've addressed some, what about the restaurant consumer in New York? I mean, what does that look like right now? I think it's really great. I mean, there's an amazing scene in New York right now. There's so many great restaurants opening. There's so many people promoting obscure wines. They're not even obscure anymore. What we would have called obscure 10 years ago is now everyday stuff. Like you mentioned Beaujolais and Muscadet. Every restaurant in New York has both in sometimes five, ten selections of each. And, you know, I think it's really the restaurant sommeliers are constantly looking for what the greatest wine they can find at the best prices. And that's Beaujolais and Muscadet. Like Muscadet is Chablis for half the money. 
Beaujolais like red burgundy for a third of the money. I mean, who doesn't love that? I mean, it hasn't necessarily made its way completely into the mainstream, but every good restaurant has both of those things. Yeah. Have you found at the midsize that there were challenges or benefits to selling at restaurants? I mean, do people say like, great, you have the stock or do they give you a hard time about something else or restaurants are, I think a lot more loyal to the producer. I mean, if they, if they like a particular producer and, you know, very high percentage of the wines that we sell don't have year round continuity from one item to the next, it's a small producer who makes 2000 cases and 10 different wines. And if you run out of one, the restaurant is a lot more likely to say, all right, what else do you have from them? Oh, I'll take that other one from the same guy that I love, where the retail is a little more focused on the particular wine that they're, that, because they have their customers that come in and want that specific thing. And I understand that. Whereas in the restaurant, you have a lot more hands-on selling to the consumer. So you can say, oh, I wanted this burgundy from this vineyard. And then the sommelier says, well, no, I have the same producer, but this one is just right down the street from this vineyard and i got this one now and it's no problem so retail might say like i want a chianti right and a restaurant might say i want this specific you know i want montevertini or something probably it's more likely yeah i mean there's a lot of retailers especially in the last five years or so that operate a lot more like restaurants you know they have very hands-on staff and they have an unusual selection which requires hands-on staff i don't think any Retail store of significance doesn't have an email program. And even a lot of restaurants now, they have their reservation email list and they do wine dinners and they promote the wines that they do. Social media also has really been huge, I think, for restaurants in particular. There's people with, if they post a wine on Instagram or Twitter, that, you know, the, the sales come in after it goes on. I mean, we just had. Raj Parr posted Jamie Kutch's wine last week and we sold out every case that we had in stock in a week. So there's all sorts of ways that people are now influencing the market. I don't think any of them are as significant yet as Robert Parker and the Wine Spectator because they're right to the consumer, you know, millions of people where the social media thing is a lot more followed by their colleagues and their peers and the buyers, which is obviously important. The buyers want the wine. We get the sale, but when the consumers are coming in asking for it, it's a lot more reaction, I think. But anything that promotes wine is okay with me. I mean, quality wine is, to me, the most important thing is just people drink better wine. Like, there's no reason why anyone should ever have to drink Yellowtail. There are a million wines at that price that are actually, like, made by a person and a family in France in, like, the middle of nowhere, and you get a Touraine Sauvignon Blanc for the same price as Yellowtail Chardonnay. I mean, there's no reason to drink that stuff. And the more educated and the less snobbery there is in wine, I think the better for everybody. And I feel like that kind of social media influence, it can have a real big impact on those kind of smaller production wines. Yes, for sure. Like a Touraine Sauvignon Blanc, that'll sell out. Whereas if somebody... I mean, this is silly to even say, but if somebody like were like all about Yellowtail on their Instagram feed and that influenced people, right? That's never going to sell out. No, <laughs> it would take quite a lot, I think, to <laughs> sell that out. Yeah. So I guess back to that brand question: What is the difference dealing with smaller, medium-sized brands versus dealing with those huge brands in terms of competing with them? So we do deal with significant brands where we sell more than 10,000 cases a year of a particular wine in just New York and New Jersey. Um, and it ranges all over the place. You know, it depends what that winery's expectations are. It depends on how the market feels about the brand. If people love it, then it's easy and a pleasure. If it's something that people don't love and it's constantly an uphill push, then that's, we don't want to do those anymore. I mean, mean, we have a really good sales force of people out there that can sell, you know, little tiny things and larger volume things. So when you hire a lot of sales reps, you know, at a time, what's important to do, you know, in the hiring process and in the training process, what works? When we started, we hired really only experienced salespeople that we knew. So, and we knew a lot of people in the business between me and my three partners that were on the wine side. 
we knew a lot of people in the business. So we hired people that we knew and we were comfortable with that had experience that we didn't need to train at all. So we just sent them out on the street with our price book and things took off straight away. Since we obviously want to develop talent and we want to bring in younger people that we can, you know, grow and train and that's a lot more of an investment. And obviously the revenue that comes in with an experienced person is a lot less. So you're investing in training them and you're also not getting hardly any revenue from their employment. Because they don't have the context. Yeah, they don't have the context. It takes years. It takes really, a French guy I knew in DC when I first started my first sales job, he said, Chris, your first year you crawl, your second year you walk, third year you run, fourth year you fly. And that's pretty true for salespeople. It takes two years to even just start cracking what you could possibly do. So it's a big investment, but we do it all the time because we know how important it is to have a diversified sales team and a strong sales team to attract new suppliers and to retain the ones that we have. So what's the book look like today? I mean, you know, you got Steven Metzler, that's Classical Wines of Spain. You have Eric Solomon, who does some work in Spain, obviously. Correct. Other areas, France. Right. So what is the book? You know, it's hard hard to say exactly how to describe our portfolio. It's meant to be like a large wine list in a restaurant where you want to have something for everyone. We want to have something for our salesperson out in Brooklyn who has a bunch of BNC accounts that, you know, are never going to buy any wine that costs more than 10 bucks. And we want to have stuff for Danielle and John George and, you know, the best restaurants in the city. So that's, again, kind of like, the medium distributor. Right. It's the old way that people used to do business before, and many still do, but just it's been a while since someone new started doing it that way. And at the same time, that that, that probably appeals to certain big brands who want to say, look, I want a lot of attention on my brand, whereas if I'm in a huge portfolio, I might get less. Right. And at the same time, it still provides access points for the smaller Right. Producer, right? That's that's, that's the idea. I mean, we have enough salespeople that, you know, and enough people in our brand management department and back of the house operations staff where we can still be of not a small size, but of a fine touch, extra touch service to them where, you know, we have enough people to do all the things that they want us to do for the most part. I always think it's really interesting to talk to someone who sells to a wide range of accounts in New York and New Jersey. What do you think is happening on trend or buying and patterns? The new world in general, I think, is really making some really great wine. And we just took on a really great South African book, Pascal Schilt, which top to bottom, $7.99 up to $70 retail. Great stuff. Australian. We just took on a new Australian book with Henry Hudson. So you're uh, making a move back into Australia because it was yeah, like, there was we're some dipping flight. our toe in for sure. I yeah. mean, we're still a little nervous about it because it's still a lot of resistance in the market to high-end Australian wine. But the ones we're bringing in are really great and they're you know, they're a little more say less flamboyant than what the ones of the past that we spoke about earlier were like. So stylistically they're appealing to people that are buying European wines actually. But I think, you know, Southern Hemisphere, California, Oregon, Washington, New York State, I can't, I mean, you go out there and you look at the vineyards, they have great terroir there. And there's so many people of significance starting to go there. And it's going to be really interesting to see how that develops in the next 10 or 20 years, because there's already a handful of people making world-class wines there, and it's just going to get crazy. So basically, what you see is the pendulum's going to swing back to favor the new world, maybe not in the same way or the same brands or the same regions as it did back in the 90s, but that swing away is going to end and just move back towards the new world. Yeah, it's definitely moving back there. You know, there's a place for every wine in the world, obviously. You know, New York, New Jersey are huge states. There's plenty of room for wine all over the world, but it's going to be, you know, at the end of the day, survival of the fittest. Who's making the best wine? Who's doing the most interesting stuff? And some things will go away. Some things will thrive. It'll be interesting for sure. But, you know, the new world is definitely really impressing right now what's happening. Do you see generational change? I mean, do you see like the young you and certain buyers that are coming up on the, either the restaurant or supply side? I think there's always generational shifts, right? I mean, the 
Parker generation is still around, of course, and that's a little bit older than me. I was just really getting into wine and the really big boom of Robert Parker and The Spectator, which they're still both very important and significant publications. But, you know, it seems now that people in their 30s, late 20s are much more comfortable with wine and they don't feel that they need to have someone else tell them it's okay. They're more likely to just go into their local store and say, hey, Jim, I want, I want a $20 wine. Whereas, you know, the Parker generation was kind of new into having money and felt like wine was something that people with money consumed. And therefore, I'm going to have to learn about wine and I have to learn about it fast because, so they, you know, it was a great thing and it was huge. I think that that, I mean, the great majority of the wines that were promoted in those publications were smaller family-owned wineries. So they weren't promoting big corporate wines. You know, we may not love all the wines that they gave big scores to, but great majority of them were really good people making interesting things. And that was a really good thing. And But the newer generation grew up with wine. They grew up with their parents drinking those wines and they were comfortable with it and familiar with it. Whereas that generation wasn't as comfortable with it. So they feel less the need to have uh, like an authority figure tell them right. what to drink but right. they're interested in learning about what to drink exactly yeah they're interested they don't need the seal of approval from someone else as much but everybody wants that it's right at some level especially if you're spending a lot of money you're going to go buy a hundred dollar bottle in the store you want the guy at the shop to tell you yeah this is great stuff get this everyone wants to feel like they're drinking the coolest thing right for sure and i think that I mean, the wine business is changing so much that, I mean, the best thing that could happen to any of us in the wine business, no matter how fancy or not fancy our company might be, is having more people drinking wine and drinking better wine, upgrading from the corporate inexpensive brands that spend 80% of the cost of that bottle on marketing, whereas, you know, you can get the wine at the same price from a farmer who doesn't spend any money on anything except a tractor and the barrels or the tanks, um, that is a really good thing, I think. And the the casual level of wine drinking that's starting to happen where one of our best-selling wines is in a can. It's great. It's, I mean, we sell it everywhere. Underwood, it's, you know, it's one of our best-selling wines, and it's in a can. Fantastic. One of my salespeople sent a picture the other day of a guy on the subway drinking an Underwood can of wine while he was riding on the subway. So... So that guy's in jail now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it, lo- it looks like a soda can, I think. So. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> and I feel like one of the legacies of the Parker thing is really still very apparent now where something can just become quite hot quite fast. Right. It's not like in the old days, I think, where people wanted to see, you know, people used to talk about pedigree over vintages as being like a marker of a great wine, but you never hear that now. Right. No one's ever like, oh, let's wait till 10 vintages and see if it's really good. Right. Now people are like, this is the new hot thing. This yeah. is awesome. And I, yeah. I feel like that's a Parker thing that's carried through in a different way. For sure. But it's very much still happening. For yeah. sure. Yeah. I mean, that's a, everybody wants instant gratification. Everybody wants to find the new cool thing. So, yeah, that happens for sure. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I think quite often the, both are correct. Like, yeah, this thing is really great. I don't need to taste another 10 vintages of it to know that. But it gives a leg in for that younger generation yeah. to make it maybe quicker than that generation sure. of the 80s. For sure. Know? And especially in America, where we don't have the long history like they have in Europe. I mean, we need to be reactive like that because there isn't any real clue yet as to what the best wine places are in America. I mean, Florida could have some random place off on the panhandle or something that could make incredible wine, and we don't even know about it. I mean, we're so immature in our wine production here compared to Europe and even places in the Southern Hemisphere, in many cases, who've been doing it for centuries. Um, To your point a bit is that the greatest wineries in Europe have been the greatest wineries because of where the fruit was coming from, right? Like the greatest Barolos, the greatest Burgundies. It's about the place, and it wasn't as much about the person who makes the wine. And there was definitely a bit of a personality thing about wine. And this person makes it, so it's great, rather than where it came from. And I think we all know where it comes from is the most important thing. And a really great, talented winemaker 
makes it into something great, but really doesn't mess around with it too much. Most of the great winemakers will say, I, I'm just trying to express what the vineyard gives me. So that's something that's also coming back a lot with the younger generation rather than it's about me. It's become more about, I found this really cool vineyard over here that nobody ever knew about. The guy just didn't know what he had. And I'm buying all of his grapes next year and it's going to be amazing. Do you speak with many producers who feel like their wines need age? I feel like a lot of people are like, I'm trying to make something that you can open. You know? Right. I think the great majority of the younger people in particular are trying to make a fresh, bright, nice wine to drink at the moment it's ready. And I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I find that I even prefer a younger wine sometimes. Like I'm, this one's all oxidized and beat up and it's really interesting, but just give me a you know, Arno Roberts Trousseau or, you know, something really fresh and bright and delicious. Um, and I think you can get pleasure in both, of course, but I drink a pretty good amount of older wine just because the business that we're in, we're pretty lucky and we get to do that. But I don't know any of my friends that ever do that. I mean, I don't have like very wealthy friends. Most of them are, you know, normal people that have normal jobs and they love wine and they drink good wine, but they don't have wine cellars where they're aging wine. I mean, most people aren't coming and presenting their wine saying, I wouldn't drink this right now, I guess would be the short answer. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but, I mean, even Burgundy, like, I love young white Burgundy. It's so good. Like, a really rich, bright, fresh, complex, crazy Merceau is awesome, young. And so many are not so good after 10 years in the bottle. I don't know. Sometimes I almost feel better ordering a younger one an older one you're not taking as much of a chance for sure and nobody likes to order an expensive bottle and say to the sommelier or the restaurant like i don't know man it's a little bit messed up what do you think and then they're like i don't know it's not that messed up and you're like it's kind of messed up did you maybe take it back no i don't think so so you can avoid that whole situation <laughs> which is nice to avoid so 10 years from now what do you think is going to happen i mean with verity in mind with the New York market in mind, it seems like there's been a lot of flux. You guys were part of it in a way. Right. What's going to happen in the next decade? From the consumption side, I think that it's going to keep getting more and more casual. I think you're going to see a lot more alternative packaging. You're going to see a lot less. I mean, I really don't understand why anyone puts a $10 retail wine with a cork in it. I really don't understand. Just put it in Stelvin or put it in a bag in the box or a can whatever. It's an everyday wine. We don't need to get the corkscrew out, open the foil. So I think you're going to see a lot less wine in 750 milliliter bottles with a cork in it in the $20 and under range. I think it's going to almost be extinct in 10 years. It should be. And I think for Verity, you know, you never know. It's so much we kind of roll with the punches and try to capitalize on opportunities when they arise we're going to definitely be focusing more on our national sales and some of our own brands that we're trying to create for security more than anything oh that's an interesting comment. yeah so having your own brands that you've have in development means that they're probably not going to leave yeah they can't they're ours we can and we can sell them into other markets around the country to our friends in california or texas or yeah make a few bucks here and there so you're building so, a brand for yourself in a right. way. And yeah. you can also have predictable growth for, for your, sure. both sides of your company. Yeah, and we can control the quality. I mean, we have it from start to finish the control of the product. And that doesn't mean we would ever favor those above the wineries we work with. And the ones we've created so far were to fit specific gaps in our portfolio that we didn't have. So we weren't putting it in to compete with something we were already selling. But it does feel really good to know Every bottle of this that my salespeople sell is going to be here. And we aren't going to lose this no matter what happens. You know, this is ours. So That seems like a benefit of medium tier distribution. Yeah. Like yeah. you couldn't do that if you were a smaller operational. I mean, we couldn't have got it started, yeah, because you have to commit to a thousand cases to start. And that's a pretty heavy investment. So, yeah. What else do you think is going to be really key? You know, my hope is that Someone new doesn't come along that co-ops the intention of the younger consumer and is able to direct them to the things they want them drinking. My hope is that the large, large corporate wineries aren't able to start doing social media and commercials and marketing that's going to start 
directing the consumer to their brands more so than the family-owned wineries. So you're saying if Constellation comes out with a trousseau and starts (laughs) marketing it on Instagram, that could be a problem for... Or even just any of their wines and they actually start doing it intelligently and, you know, and people... I mean, wines are way less branded than any other alcoholic beverage, right? Like, it's not... There aren't people that say, I only drink Absolute, you know, which... With booze, that is very much the case. It's changing too there also, but I want people drinking stuff that comes from a person that isn't 70, 80% of the cost of that product from their marketing budget and their sales team and et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, you're always wondering who the next big thing's going to be. There's a lot of influential people right now and you never know. Someone crazy might just show up in a week and influence every single 20 something year old kid to drink this certain wine and who knows that's what i do not want to see happen i like that the newer generation is drinking things on their own instincts or taking the lead from their local wine shop or just what they like you know whatever they like it's totally cool but not as directed by someone chris desor likes that consumers are following their own instincts today in the wine market thank you very much for being here today Thanks, Levy. Chris Tesor, one of the co-founders of Verity Wine Partners in New York and New Jersey. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.